Good morning, and today we have two more signs to take a look at. The more I've studied these two, I've never realized, because when you're studying something so tight, you never realize how connected and how thematic it keeps moving through in how it's confronting you on issues of sin and dependence upon God. And the more I've digested through this, I've got much more studying to do, but as I've digested through this text, it's just taken me deeper and deeper and deeper. So again, I hope you take the text itself, get into the Word, and dig through it. There's so many, and I'm only going to be able to bring up bits and pieces, because we're kind of doing an overview. So, our time. Let's take a quick review. Signs. First one that we really looked at in John, we worked through the changing of water into wine. We were introduced to the purpose of the signs as one commentator I read said, the motive is solely that the glory of Christ might be revealed and that the disciples might believe as a result of that revelation. The second one that we moved through, we learned much from the healing of the official son. It showed Jesus' power to heal illness as well as heal a sinner. We saw faith grow in the father and then to his whole family. The third one, we saw the healing of an invalid. The point of this miracle was not one to show faith, but the healing power of Jesus. And to help us realize that if he does not come and intervene in one's life, we will continue to be blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus went to the man when he was not even seeking Jesus. This shows us the depth of God's grace. This man was chosen by Christ to be healed. Last time we detailed the theological definition of miracles. In John's Gospel, he points to each of these events as signs. And there is a direct use of the term by John. The word sign in Greek means a distinguishing mark or token. If you will remember that in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel. It was the point of something that something is Christ's glory is the point that these symbols are laid before us. It points to his glory. Our last sign, it all points to Christ. And again, we remember John 2, 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So as we go through the signs in John, each one is there to reveal God. Now this morning, we have the feeding of the multitude, the thousands. So turn to John chapter 6, and I'll be reading out of the ESV. It'll be the first 15. Verses. This gives us the whole context of the event. Verse 1, after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, 
feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to himself. Now I know that you and I have probably read this, heard many sermons, gone through this multiple times, and the bad thing is sometimes with so much familiarity, we start losing the context, we start losing the detail. We kind of go, yeah, 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 I heard that and move on. We never want to move on from text of Scripture. We never want to just take it as a just simple statement. The danger is the familiarity to the text tends to cause us to kind of go, oh, yeah, I got that. I know that. I don't know how many times I've read Scripture over and over, and the more truth keeps coming out of it. I always, when I talk to young people, a lot, a lot of times it makes sense how this happens because it was written by an infinite God. So, of course, it's never-ending. The teaching is constantly coming out of the text. We need to let the truth of God go deep into our lives, and we will find that there are many aspects of our lives mirroring the individuals in this text. And mirroring for me. All right, first point is we need to set the time and location of this event. This is verses one through four. Just take a look at the beginning of verse one, it gives you a little idea of some of timing issues here. It starts with after this, it's an undesignated lapse of time separating chapters five and six. But what is more clear is the movement of Jesus and his disciples. Where have they been? Where are they coming from? And where are they going? Jesus moved to the east side of the Sea of Galilee from the towns of Galilee to a more Gentile area with a lower population. So it comes from more of a populated area in Galilee over to the eastern slopes. A large crowd was following Jesus because of the signs that they had witnessed or had heard of. They wanted what his miraculous power could give them. Jesus has taken his disciples away after hearing that Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist. So he needed to be alone. Take his disciples some alone time where he can spend time with the Father. The time of this event is near the time of the Passover. 
Now, again, we don't know which Passover and the time of this, but we start getting an understanding of what's happening in the area. Remember what the Passover meal points to. It points to the salvation of the Jews from Egypt's bondage and suffering. So it was a past look. Also remember, too, when as you're thinking of what's happening here, these people, because it's the Passover time, a lot of these people are probably pilgrims coming in from areas. So you're getting a mass load of people coming into the area of Jerusalem on their way down. While in Egypt, they were oppressed. Yet they had food and supplies that they needed. After the Exodus, they were in the barren wilderness with no food or water, yet God provided. Notice the similarities in some of these points that we'll look at in the feeding. He has compassion. They have a need. He meets the need. How does he meet the need? To the fullest. Keep that in mind. Now, we move into an interesting section that it's really a test of trust in Jesus, the reliance on Jesus. This is verses 5 through 9. This one's the most intriguing because this is why you want to kind of get into deeper studies because if you just read, up, oh, Philip, yeah, whatever, Philip, you get a little bit deeper. Jesus looks up and sees the crowd knowing their need for food. They're in an area not heavily populated, so the easy access to food is eliminated. It's not like, again, like we said last time, it's not like going down the street, going to the store and wiping all the bread section out. It's not that way. Not possible. Not in that time period. So Jesus sets up a test for Philip. Now, it's interesting. You kind of go in your mind, why Philip? What's, why is he picking on him first? What's the deal? Well, let's think a little bit through on this. Philip is from Bethsaida, and that's in the area where they're at. So Philip would be a natural person to look at and say, you know the area. How are we going to feed these people? Where are we going to get the food? Now, that is a setup for a test because it's going to put Philip in a very rough situation to go, who are you going to trust? It's the same test that we receive from the Lord. When you are faced with a need that will, you know, the real question is, what will you do when the test comes? Here's an example, and I think we heard it in our prayer group this morning. A car expense has hit that you were not planning on, and it's above what you're able to pay. What do you do? Or a medical expense hits out of the ability to pay. What will you do? And where will you go? So the test is presented to Philip. Why again? He knows the area. What's he going to rely on? Is he going to rely on his mental awareness of the area himself? Well, let's take a look. The test is, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Are we talking about a dinner group of maybe five people? No, we're talking about 5,000 men. Add to that, women and children. Note that this was a test for Jesus already knew what he was going to do to feed the crowd. But it's to help Philip grow. Philip surveys the situation, sees the crowd. He looks at them and starts thinking. Hmm. 
you will also see yourself in Philip. I saw myself immediately in Philip. I think I actually saw myself in Philip this week at work. So Philip looks at the crowd with great evaluation, evaluates the number, looks at the size, the distribution, thinks about the area where the bakers might be or families that he might be able to go to to get. He starts to calculate, well, if we can buy this bread, then it's, oh, my word. So here's what he comes up with. The best he comes up with is that even if they had six months of wages, it would still not be enough to provide even a taste to the crowd. So he's he's done the calculation, he's done the work, he's done the mental exercise, and he goes, I, we, um, I don't know. That's it. He just drops it. His answer, Jesus, there's nothing we can do. Oh, well. What's the flaw in his thinking? Who has he been with and seen so many miracles and signs that he comes with? There's nothing that can be done. Jesus is standing right in front of him, and this is his reply. Really? Do we do the same thing? Do we know that Jesus is the creator? Do we know that there is no limit to his care for us, yet we come away saying there is nothing we can do? It's hopeless. We look in ourselves and see no solution, then we end, end it there. That's it. I, 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 sorry, I'm done. Can't do it. We're no different than Philip. We will do the intense calculation, see the impossibilities, and stop for nothing can be done. With this situation, I had a professor ask the hard question. I always had trouble with some of these professors and their questions because you know they were drilling right down to the middle of this. He'd ask, how big is your God? Oh, boy. I remember one time some of the messages that we had in, in youth at Grace Church, the question was, is your God so small that he can fit in your pocket? I think a lot of times that's a true statement. How easy is it to just look to ourselves and never turn to the creator God and present our need? Philip, you are my mirror, because I do that. I do the same thing instead of going straight to Jesus for all the things like I have the better plan. Catch myself at work all the time. Something just hits and I can't, I can't get past it. I can't. So then I start fretting more and more and more and I start calculating more. My mindset is, an, is as an engineer, so I'm immediately trying to find solutions, angles, different positions and places and whatever, and, and all the different ways to calculate it. So you know what the problem is? Where's the first place i got to go home to? Go straight to Jesus. But I rely on me too much. So, all right, we move Philip out the scene, and in moves Andrew. We think, okay, we've got part two. We've got a better chance here. Andrew's a little closer, but he misses the mark. You'll remember that Andrew is a man who brings people to Jesus. He brings a boy with bread and fish to Jesus. Also remember, too, that he also brought Peter, his brother, to Jesus. 
And there's another story that, that's quite interesting. When you kind of read over it and you kind of forget it, there's also another time where a set of Gentiles wanted to speak with Jesus. So the other apostles bring these Gentiles to Peter. Why? Because he brings people to Jesus. Okay? So it, it it's the right guy. But he's moving so close because he says, "I've well, we've got this boy over here. And we've got five, and you might want to say instead of loaves, because you and I are thinking, you know, like French loaves and all that kind of good big stuff. No, they're little barley cakes. That gives you a better idea of the size. It's not just kids. I mean, picture a little kid carrying five French loaves and two little fish. What's, you know, the proportion is a little bit off. But two little fish or a fish spread. And look at his response. What are they for so many? I... That's as far as it goes. This is the boy's lunch. There's barley cakes, possibly a pickled fish or a fish spread. Andrew looks at it and agrees that it may be enough for the boy, but the crowd? No. Sorry. No way. Andrew, the creator God is standing in front of you, and you have seen this miraculous sign all around you, and yet you stop and say, nothing can be done. It's hopeless. And again, Andrew is my mirror. We seek others first for the help and solutions that we need while the Lord is right there and the one that we must turn to first. So the question is now, is can the Lord really provide? Well, let's go to the provision. Let's see what happens with those Five barley cakes and the fish, verses 10 through 13. The miracle is signed. Again, the the miracle, the sign is done without fanfare and pageantry. It's not a big setup. It's not lights. It's not smoke. It's not a big event. It just occurs. Jesus simply goes to the Father in thankfulness and provides the meal. That's it. Food's a basic need for the human, and we see that the Lord cares for our needs. He had compassion on the crowd, for they had the need of food, and he provided that need. Now, I know for me, there are so many times that I build in my mind that I feel there is something that I need, and it's really a want. And sometimes it's really hard to differentiate what the real need. That's why a lot of times I will always rely and say, God, I know this might be a want, but I know what I need because you know it. So like a child, if I don't get what I want, I think God does not care. It's that knee-jerk reaction, that sinful action. I say be careful, Christian, that you're not making God into the genie to grant you wishes for whatever you need. It's easy to do. If something doesn't happen our way, what's our reaction? That's why I call it like a child, because that's <laughs> what they do. Now look again at the text at the end of verse 11. You see the phrase, as much as they wanted. Key phrase. The Lord's not barely meeting the need. He meets it to the fullest. Both the cakes and the fish were provided to all until they had no more need. See, he cares for us. He instructs his disciples to collect what remains 
and with baskets in hand, they fill. And again, evidence that the Lord provides. And I love the statement in verse 13, when we are reminded where this whole thing started. Think about this. We have 12 baskets full of excess. And with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, God provides. This is the one that we want to be king is now where they're moving. This crowd is, is seeing miracles. They've been fed. Wow, this is the guy that we need. I mean, think about it. our health care system completely taken care of. Our food source, our daily needs taken care This is the man for us. We gotta have him. So we move now to a scene that is so sad that the crowd wants Jesus to be their new king to heal and provide food. They want a leader to fight off the Roman control so they can be free. Jesus came to free mankind, but not from rulers, but from sin. They're ready to take him by force if he's unwilling to be their king. The qualifications they have were healing and food. They wanted him for themselves, for what he would give their selfish selves all they wanted. It's painful to think that there is a group that wants Jesus to be king, and later there's a group that cries out, crucify him, crucify him. In his commentary, William Barclay writes something that's so captive in this attitude and temperament, and it points straight to us. When we want comfort and sorrow, when we want strength and difficulty, when we want peace and turmoil, when we want help, when life has got us down, there is no one so wonderful as Jesus. Then we talk to him and we walk with him and we open our hearts to him. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, with some challenge to effort, with the offer of some cross, then we'll have nothing to do with him. When we examine our hearts, it may be that we will find that we too love Jesus for what we can get out of him. And when he comes to us with his great challenges and demands, we too grow lukewarm and even resentful and hostile to this disturbing and demanding Christ. I think that just about says it all. So how do we grow? How do we move from this? We learn from Philip and Andrew, they look to themselves or the world around them for the solution. It's only found in Jesus. So the real question every day and every moment of our life is who or what do you trust? Do you trust yourself, the world, or is it Christ first? Kind of goes back to another professor I had, asked one of those, and I've said it before, asked one of those kind of irritating questions. When you don't have to think, what do you think about? Of course, at first I went, <laughs> some psychotic moment here. No, it's a very simple question. When you don't have to think about anything specifically, what does your mind naturally center on? Is it the word? Is it on Christ? Is it on the truth? Or is it into the world? Stuff. That haunts me continually. So now we move to the fifth sign. Jesus walking in water. Now John is very abbreviated. It's almost like reading out of Mark, where Mark just kind of 
takes the whole baptism to the you know the wilderness temptation and ministered to by angels in Galilee, and you're going. That's like three sentences. It was, you know, John's going to do about the same thing. Why? Because remember, John is very focused on what the sign is and who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And the fact is the signs glorify him. So we move to John 6, verse 16. Follow along as I read. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and going near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Isn't that fast? It's abbreviated. Do you you, you all of a sudden in your head start going, wait a minute, all kinds of other things happened here. But John, no, John's very narrow and focused on what he's covering. All right, let's go back up, verse 16 and 17. Straight statement, go home, okay? We're not told in John's text, but Jesus, when he removed himself from the crowd and went back to the mountain, he instructed his disciples to go home, to go to Capernaum. We get that out of Mark 6.45. John seems to make it sound in this text when you read it, you're like, wow, that's kind of abrupt. It's like they just left Jesus, you know. Ah, the guy's not here, whatever, we're going to leave. We're just going to go some. Transportation is not that easy. But that John's very abrupt and, and fast how he's moving. We can fill in with the other texts, the other, other Gospels fill in much more detail. We need to extract the details of the scene to aid in our learning so we need to start adding some pieces of this event that's going to occur on Lake Tiberias. Add, it was dark. Okay? No ability to see great distances nor know where you are or where you're going. Navigation is limited. And if any of you have done any kind of boating or any getting gotten out there in, in a boat in the sea and everything and you get night, navigation is tricky. You feel isolated and alone. I've read stories of people that were shipwrecked and marooned and, and floating in the ocean for weeks. And one of the hardest aspects of their being there is the aloneness. It starts to eat on you. What direction are we rowing? Have we made any progress? I remember kayaking one time. We came out around the mangroves and we're trying to head north along the coastline. And we are rowing and rowing. And I was looking at the side of the shore and I'm going, we aren't moving. Why? We had a current coming straight at us. Kind of one of the thoughts that we had, maybe we need to check the currents before we do something like this next time. Good point. One more element to the scene. Jesus is not there. So these elements are going to continue to grow and test the men in their faith. You know, at this point, I've always thought, where are the 12 baskets of food? You ever wondered? You ever thought that? You ever come along going, Okay, they just collected, they got 12 baskets, and they don't want to waste anything. 
They didn't throw it out. So where is it? Best thing I can think of is where would it be? It's in the boat. What they just saw Jesus do, creating a full meal for a crowd of thousands, the remnants are sitting in the boat as a reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's there in their boat. It's the only thing I can think. We get no other information from the other writers. But what would the logical place be? Because Jesus said, collect these things. We don't want to waste anything. Okay. So, now we're going to add a storm to these issues as they encounter Jesus. So you add the dark. You add the fact that they're alone out there on a boat. Have you ever thought of this? A rowboat, folks. A rowboat. No little trolling motor. No little motor to start up. No gas-powered anything. We're talking about a rowboat. Okay? You ever been in a rowboat in a storm? All right. Think about that. As we have studied at other times, the storm starts with a strong wind driven down from the northern or the eastern slopes of the mountains, the higher mountains that are on the eastern side of this lake. It's a shallow lake, and wind is an energy force. It's hitting the lake, and that energy's got to go somewhere, but you got a shallow lake, what's going to happen? You're going to get violent waves. So the reaction to what's occurring is starting to mount up. It's dark. They're rowing. They're alone. They're in the middle of wherever. You get this heavy wind that's, and, and, as, and the other text has said that it's what? They're rowing hard against the wind. These guys are not getting any relief. They're working hard at this. You know, this is the type of storm that these fishermen knew about. They know that they can be deadly, and we saw it earlier in a storm that Mark records in Mark 4, 37 through 41. Let me read. And a great windstorm. Wind Notice wind is always your initiator of the waves. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Wouldn't you have made, you know, if you're one of the guys in the boat going, he's asleep. He's okay with this. No. Notice their response is kind of sarcastic. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's kind of a harsh response, guys. And he woke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. Now, imagine this. You're on this boat. You are convinced you're going to die. And he says, peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's God. It's God. Okay, guys, keep growing. So you see that these men had seen the power of Jesus calm the sea, but the big difference here is that Jesus was not in the boat. Think about our official and his dying son. What was the insistent thing that he wanted to do? He needed Jesus to go and heal his son. Be there. 
he insists twice that Jesus go. Jesus says, your son will live. Go. And the man does. But these men are struggling because they don't have Jesus with them. Again, they're, they're not thinking, no matter where he is, he's aware of what their situation is. Mark again fills in the information, helping us to know that Jesus is fully aware of what the men then and we ourselves are going through and where we are. Mark 6, 46 and 48, this is the most beautiful. I mean, this when I read this text years back, it was just lit up in my mind because I'm like, why do I ever think that Jesus is unaware of what's going on, no matter where I am? Read Psalm 139 if you need a deeper question on that one. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came and the boat was out on the sea, I mean the at night boat, sea, rowboat, okay, you got it. And he was alone on the land, not with them. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Big lights should come up. Jesus was not with them. He was far off. It was night, so it's not like he's going to take a scope and see them. He is God, and he knows what they're dealing with. So Jesus came to them about 3 a.m., so we know that Jesus is was not dealing with the light of day to see where they were. He wasn't scoping out and scanning, walking back and forth on the lake to find them. He went to them. That's one of the pieces that hits my head and going, he knows exactly where we are and exactly what we need. So he knows our situation and he knows where we are. And you know what? He came to them. They first see what they think was a ghost. And you go, what's wrong with these guys, you know? Well, consider, one, they're fishermen. What are some of the stories that have been going on that they grew up about the monsters of the sea, about the Leviathan, about all the different ghosts and all the, you know, the local lore of the fishermen? Guess what else they're dealing with? They've been rowing hard all night. They've been up all day. They've been doing ministry. They've been picking up bread pieces, so they're a little tired. What happens when you and I get really tired? Get kind of delusional, right? I mean, you start seeing things that aren't there. You usually don't tell people because they don't want <clears throat> to cart you off. So besides being tired from the storm and hard rowing, they're losing it. So they think they're seeing things and they're afraid. And Jesus quickly calls out to them and calms them with a phrase that they've grown up with knowing that this is the phrase from the Exodus, I am. He calms them by declaring again that he is God, and he also commands them, don't be afraid. In the other Gospels, this is the time when Peter desires to be with Jesus and walks in the water and learns a great lesson. John does not present the detail, for he is focused on the signs of Jesus, and this one specifically, the walking on the water. His power of the elements. And if you've noticed, no human has ever walked on water. Ever. 
So Jesus gets into the boat. John kind of cuts this thing a little tight. You're kind of, mm. seas calmed to glass. Again, remember, shallow lake, a lot of violent, a lot of energy hitting it, severe waves, the wind stops instantly, and the water goes to glass. And in previous times we've talked about this, what's the big thing? It's going to take hours and days for that energy that's been hitting that lake to finally stabilize and the water go calm. And it goes calm because of his command. John's a bit abrupt when he simply states that Jesus helped them with the storm and then helped them to their destination. Ding, they're there. It almost sounds like they got teleported, doesn't it? It's a little quick. But let's keep moving. The text is short, but it's packed full of never-ending truths that we must meditate on. These are often to mine the depths of this. I know it's a small text, but small text. I, have you ever noticed those small little books that you read that are gospel-centric books? They're small, and you think, oh, this is a small one. I can get through this in a couple hours. And then you realize it's a couple of days. Oh, it's a couple of weeks. I remember reading um, a small book, C.J. Mahaney's book on humility, right? I got that, no problem. You know, I wrote the secondary book of that. No, you know, you think, small book, read quick. Uh-uh. I barely could do one chapter every few days because there was way too much that I had to examine in my life and take a look at and start making some changes. I thought, humility, got that. No, I don't. Not at all. And the brother was so transparent about his own life and the struggle with humility it made it worse on me. I thought, well, he's got... No, he doesn't. It's hard. Small book? Okay. Small little text to Scripture. So we know that being in a rowboat removes your power to maneuver to control the boat in the storm. Their ability to control is removed. They're helpless. The darkness of the night removes even more control and navigation. The wind hits hard and the waves start breaking and they're now battling the elements. They've got no options. Try as they did to row, but they made little progress. Their intentions were good, but they could not get to their destination. As with the five barley cakes and the two fish, they used human means to find answers to the dilemma. No answers were found. Jesus was aware of their need, yet they tried on their own efforts. They're alone in the boat. No Jesus. What do they do? What would you do? They should have cried out to Jesus for help, as should we. The first effort must always be to Jesus, not to ourselves, nor the world around us. These men learn this as Jesus helps them to check their faith. Not only the level of their faith, but the source of their faith. True faith is only found in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So faith tested is faith that grows. Studying these two signs together has helped me to see the similar qualities. They are both pointing to the reality that we need Jesus at all times and need him first. And when faced with decisions and situations, our first place is Jesus. Not our own thoughts, our own plans. Philip and Andrew sought their own plan and then performed their own calculations. The men in the boat kept rowing 
with great effort, yet going poorly. And on their own, they did not get to their destination. We're left with one reality. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Father, there is absolutely no way that we can try to even do anything on our own. It's clear and scripture has told us, and Jesus even said it, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's so difficult for us to admit that because we're so self-energized, so self-sufficient. We're so selfish. And we always think first of ourselves. We don't think first of you. God, give us strength and humility to seek you first. You've given us great lessons in Matthew 6 to where the lilies of the field, they don't have to clothe themselves. The birds of the air don't have to seek out food and try to figure out and, and store their food in barns. And you end it by seeing, seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Father, help us to be men and women who seek you first for everything. Not trying to evaluate and think we can solve the world's problems or any of our own, but that we trust you for all things. It's the most difficult thing for us to do as Christians because even being saved and knowing that there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves, we also think then, therefore, that there's a lot that we can do to help ourselves. There's nothing there. Help us to be men and women who seek you first and trust you, even though the solution may seem ridiculous to us or hopeless. We know through you, you can guide us and direct us with hope. We love you, and again, thank you for your care and the amazing text of Scripture that helps us to see that we truly are dependent upon you for all things. Guide us this week, strengthen us in the Word, and grow us to be greater saints for you. In Jesus, amen.